This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. We see then this image guiding those in pursuit of justice to lift up the lowly, to form relationships of solidarity with those who are on the margins of society, with those who have experienced violence, marginalization, conquest, and to seek to build a community that is predicated not on that inequality and difference, but on justice, participation, and mutuality. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash not seen radio. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day. At sax.com. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm delighted today to welcome our guest, Nicole M. Flores. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia. She's the author of several scholarly articles and is a contributing writer for America Magazine. She was the recipient of the 2015 Catherine Mowry Lacuna Award for the Best Academic Essay in Catholic Theology from the Catholic Theological Society of America. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity, our Lady of Guadalupe and American Democracy. Professor Nicole Flores, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you for having me, David. I'm so excited to talk about this book, and I think as a way of setting the table for our listeners, because my listeners are from all over the spectrum, some of them will be familiar with Catholicism, some will be less familiar with Catholicism, so perhaps we should start with Our Lady of Guadalupe herself, when we talk about this figure who is here in the subtitle of your book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity, who are we talking about and what does it mean in the wider stretch of Catholicism? Well, to risk making it a bit complicated from the beginning, sometimes it depends on who you're speaking to as to who Our Lady of Guadalupe is. So for many, if not most Catholics, she is the apparition of the Virgin Mary who appeared on a hill called Tepeyac in Mexico City in 1531 to a peasant by the name of Juan Diego. But her symbol is quite interesting in that 
the hill upon which he appeared to Juan Diego in order to encourage him to approach the bishop and to build a basilica in her honor, this very hill was also one that was a place of worship of Tonantzin, who was an Aztec goddess. So there's some syncretism already built in to the symbol of Our Lady of Guadalupe, who is, of course, a Catholic symbol, but also a powerful cultural, and as I argue in the book, even a political symbol that resonates with not just with Catholics and not just with Mexicans or Mexican-Americans, but with a broad range of people, given the uh, liberatory and empowering message and consoling message that she had for Juan Diego. Now, if I'm hearing you correctly, when we look at Our Lady of Guadalupe, we're seeing a symbol that is both a symbol of veneration and, if I'm hearing you correctly, subversion, a symbol of piety and politics. Now, these are my words, not yours. But as I say (laughs) that back to you, does that sound right or would you say it in a different way? Absolutely. That sounds correct to me. And it's this tension between the piety and devotion that many Catholics, but also many others have for her symbol and her political significance that is really fascinating in, of course, in over the course of Catholic history in the Americas, but in our present cultural and political context. To navigate those tensions means to explore what our religious devotion and our spirituality has to do with our politics. And you mentioned this character in 1531, Juan Diego. Let's talk a little bit about him as well. Where did he come from? What were his socioeconomic circumstances? What sort of person was he? Well, he was, as I mentioned, an Aztec commoner. So he was a part of the people who were conquered and experienced. Now, there's, of course, different historical interpretations of the kind of events that the encounter in the Americas was, but it affirms the conquest of the Aztec people was one of both violence, but also a cultural commingling in a way that might strike those of us with a background primarily in the United States as odd, because when we think of colonization in the United States, we think of the relationship between colonizer and Native Americans, where there was a separation between the communities or between those who held people as property and enslaved other people. They sought to separate themselves from those people and to even after slavery had been abolished, to separate themselves from people who were different from them, and also to reinforce a social hierarchy that drew upon those differences in order to maintain power. Whereas in Latin America, there has been more of a cultural and even a religious commingling where oppressed and oppressor live side by side with one another. So for Juan Diego, this meant that he 
came from the most oppressed of the oppressed. And actually, in some of the accounts of the encounter between Juan Diego and Guadalupe, he refers to himself as the people's dung or the excrement of the people. And that is a way of indicating where he saw his own position within society being the lowest of the low, not worthy of attention. So for Juan Diego to be a conquered and colonized person who saw himself as inhabiting that space, both spiritually, but also politically, it makes the encounter that he had with Our Lady of Guadalupe really powerful in both a spiritual way, but also in terms of the politics of colonial Mexico. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nicole M. Flores. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity, Our Lady of Guadalupe, and American Democracy. I want to continue with what you've just been saying about this person, Juan Diego, because in the Gospel of Luke, we get this song from the Virgin Mary, the Magnificat, where she talks about casting down the mighty and filling the hungry with good things and reversals of expectation and reversals of fortune. What I'm hearing you saying here in the story of Juan Diego is a kind of incarnation of the Magnificat, where a person who described himself as the people's dung was tapped to be the emissary of the Virgin Mary in this community and to go and to speak to these people with immense power in his community. When I'm making those connections, am I getting it right or would you say it in a different way? That is absolutely right and a beautiful way to say it. I would think that there is something scriptural, something biblical about this encounter between Our Lady of Guadalupe and Juan Diego, that it's not just lifting Juan Diego up for arbitrary reasons, but as a way of enacting the kingdom of God, as a way of saying that the lowliest of the low are not only a part of the kingdom, but will inherit the kingdom. (laughs) And that is a powerful message for all of us, which is one of the reasons why The spiritual resonance of the symbol is so deep. Even when I speak with those who might disagree with my arguments about the political significance of their encounter, they're often very moved by the idea that Guadalupe lifts up the lowliest of the low, and they identify with that experience spiritually because among us has not experienced some form of devastation, some form of profound suffering, some form of oppression. And Guadalupe's appearance to Juan Diego participates in that scriptural message that we receive, that we hear at Mass or we hear in our church services about God lifting up those who have been bowed down and laid low. Now, what I'm hearing in all of this is that From the middle of the 1500s onward, Our Lady of Guadalupe became a symbol for certainly Catholics in the Americas, 
but also non-Catholics, those who were part of this mixed culture of Aztec and Conqueror that you were talking about. And and is it fair to say that the person of Juan Diego has also become a kind of symbol for multiple communities, or is it really that the focus is on Our Lady of Guadalupe and Juan Diego is a footnote in that story? I think that within certain pockets of the Catholic Church, Juan Diego is deeply revered. Of course, he is canonized. He is Saint Juan Diego, San Juan Diego. But as a little illustration of perhaps a lack of familiarity with Juan Diego in the greater church, when my youngest son was baptized, the deacon at our parish asked if we would like to include any saints in particular in the litany that he would read. And of course, we said, well, we would love to include Our Lady of Guadalupe. And he was excited about that. And we said, and also St. Juan Diego. And he paused and he looked at me and he said, is he a saint? And Of course he's a saint, but this just goes to show the outsized significance of this beautiful, albeit beautiful, symbol of Our Lady of Guadalupe that's said to have appeared on Juan Diego's tilma or his cloak that he presented to the bishop as a sign that Guadalupe wanted her basilica built on Tepeyac. But the familiarity with his story and his significance within the story is often eclipsed by the spiritual, cultural, and even political power of her symbol. And as so often happens with these apparitions, I imagine that part of his story was fighting against the attempts to shut him up and shut him down. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, yes. That is definitely a part of his story, as and as those of us who <laughs> are familiar with these stories can attest, there's a pattern of being denied <laughs> and turned away. And that was the case, it's said to have been the case with Juan Diego, that he repeatedly went before Bishop Zumarraga to request that Guadalupe's Basilica be built and was repeatedly turned away and not just turned away. And so some of the accounts, especially if you read the story in a children's book, which I do with my sons, they relate it as the wise bishop sent him away. And so he could ponder more. It's a little bit cleaned up for the younger audience. The bishop is said to have been deeply skeptical of Juan Diego and actually sent some of his priests to follow him to make sure that he wasn't trying to pull a fast one on the bishop. (laughs) So it, it wasn't, you know, just a Hmm, well, I'm not sure I believe you yet. Why don't you go away and <laughs> come back and see me again? There was an adversarial relationship between Juan Diego and the bishop until Juan Diego appeared with this beautiful image of La Virgen de Guadalupe on his tilma. And of course, the roses or the Castilian flowers that are said to have fallen from his tilma that were additional evidence of the favor that she'd found with Juan Diego and the legitimacy of the claim that he was making. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nicole M. Flores. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia. She's the author of several scholarly articles and is a contributing writer for America Magazine. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity, Our Lady of Guadalupe and American Democracy. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Nicole M. Flores. She is Associate Professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia. She's the author of several scholarly articles and is a contributing writer for America Magazine. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity, Our Lady of Guadalupe and American Democracy. Well, in the first segment, we talked at length about the history and the meaning, both theological and political, of Our Lady of Guadalupe. But now I want to turn to the main part of the title of your book, this idea of aesthetics. And when I encounter that term, you know, I live here in Chicago, we've got a lot of museums, and oftentimes I think of that as, well, that just means I'm going to go into a museum and I'm going to look at the pretty art and it's going to make me feel a certain way and I'm going to appreciate the art, and that's aesthetics. So that's where I'm starting in this conversation. What have I got right about that, and what would you take further in telling me about aesthetics? Well, you are partially right that a part of our aesthetic experience includes beholding that which is beautiful. Going to a museum and seeing a beautiful painting or seeing a beautiful church building, beholding it, seeing a community mural that's in addition to being stunning in terms of its coloring or its subject matter also compels us because it was painted by an entire neighborhood of people rather than just one artist. There are a lot of ways that beauty works on us and does work for us. Alejandro Garcia Rivera, who is a late Cuban-American Catholic theologian, said that beauty is that which moves the human heart. So you are right about that. But the way that I approach the aesthetic within this text is to think about our sensory experiences writ large, that it's perhaps too limiting to think just about how 
our beholding of art or hearing of beautiful music, if you will, affects us and shapes us as moral beings, but also how does our sensory experience in general shape us? So one example that I love, I'm a sports fan and I'm sure that the Chicago-based listeners can identify with this, although I'm from Denver, so you can guess my allegiances. But an aesthetic experience is listening to the roar of a crowd inside of the stadium, whether that's football or baseball or a basketball stadium, and hearing that energy and that bringing something alive in us or another aesthetic experience. And this is one of my favorite ones is walking into my mother's kitchen while she's making fresh flour tortillas and smelling the masa and experiencing the warmth of the kitchen. That is a profoundly aesthetic experience, but so is witnessing videos of Black men and women who have experienced violence at the hands of law enforcement officers who are supposed to protect them. That's an aesthetic experience, too. Think about how you felt the first time you viewed the video of George Floyd's death. That there is an aesthetic experience as well. So while beauty helps us to understand aesthetic experience to a certain extent, what I want to draw our attention to in this work is the more full and complex way that our sensory experience orients us within the world and how that shapes us morally. I'm so grateful for that answer, and I'd like to dig into it a little bit because the examples that you gave, I think, are incredibly rich for helping my listeners understand the depth of what you're meaning. You mentioned three in particular. You mentioned the roar of a crowd. You mentioned going into the kitchen and smelling the tortillas that your mother was cooking. And you mentioned seeing a video of violence against an African-American body. You mentioned George Floyd in particular. And what that made me think of as I was hearing your answer, when I sit in the middle of the the crowd and I hear the roar, part of what that tells me in my body is that I'm not alone. I'm in the midst of a place where I belong and that there's power in this belonging. When I think about you walking into your kitchen, that's also a version of I belong, but now it's, and now I know where I come from because the smell of the tortillas, it reminds me of my friend, uh, Father Bruce, a Catholic priest who comes from an Italian family and he inherited his, his mother's cookware. And he says every time that he cooks pasta and other types of dishes from Italy for, on this pasta, he thinks about being connected to his mother and his family going back generations. And then I think about your example of the video and what I feel in my body when I see this kind of representation of violence against another human being is, okay, I belong, I know where I come from, and now I have to do something to make this better. So as I'm drawing these examples together about aesthetics, I feel like I'm getting a better understanding of how you're using that term. What have I got right in this and what have I still missed? What would you take further? I think that you make a really excellent point that these experiences give us a sense of who we are, where we come from, and what we should do. But I also hear you gesturing to the way they make us aware of the communities to which we belong, and also communities from which we might be alienated. And that is the case, I think, 
with the third example of these videos, if you, especially if you are a person who is Black, or I can say as a person who is not Black, but also not white, in that I am Mexican-American, seeing these videos brings to the surface intense emotions of alienation, of being removed from community. And I think this connects to the other part of my title, the aesthetics of solidarity and the kinds of communities that we build in light of both this positive sense of who we are, where we come from, to whom do we belong, in addition to these, this sense of alienation, it generates this call to solidarity, this call to action upon those feelings of solidarity in order to pursue right relationship and justice within our society and to do that in a way that we are called to do as Christians requires that we do so in the spirit of communion and drawing together our community and healing wounds and striving to be one body in Jesus Christ. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nicole M. Flores. She is an associate professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia. We're speaking today about her recent book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity, Our Lady of Guadalupe and American Democracy. I'm really grateful you just made this pivot to solidarity because I think that is the kind of move that that makes sense given what we've said so far about aesthetics and the way that you're using the term. But now I want to dig into this term solidarity because you do some things that I thought were really astonishingly good in, in your book because you helped me to see as a reader that not all solidarities are created equal. There's an asymmetry in solidarity and a way of thinking about preference within solidarity where we could prefer one type of solidarity over the other. And an example from where you are at the University of Virginia that you use is the type of solidarity that we saw in the Unite the Right rally, where white men were walking around in polo shirts carrying tiki torches, shouting, Jews will not replace us, Jews will not replace us, and intimidating persons of color around them. So that's one kind of solidarity. And what I'm getting from your book is that's not the kind of solidarity you're wanting to point us to, but rather a different kind of solidarity. So first of all, do I have that analytic distinction correct? And if so, what's the kind of solidarity that you would point to as a preferential solidarity to the kind that we're seeing in something like the the Right Rally? Yes. And that example is so resonant still to this day here in my context in Charlottesville, Virginia. We just remember the fifth anniversary of the events of August 11th and 12th. And I so happen to be on a tour of the remaining monuments at the University of Virginia with other faculty members. And when we came to the Jefferson statue, where so much of that violence was experienced, especially on the night of August 11th, right here on our grounds, there was still profound emotion that was associated with that. And that experience of viewing these awful things that were happening, but also many of our community members were not far from where that violence was happening and were themselves physically threatened. It really changed our community. And I think it ended up showing us what 
a negative solidarity or solidarity built in hatred and pursuing inequality, what that looks like and how the solidarity that we seek as a community today who experience that collective trauma is different. We seek a kind of solidarity rooted in justice and equality, in mutuality, in participation in our city. And one thing, well, a lot of things have happened in Charlottesville since the time of those rallies, but I've been most impressed by the way that the local community has united together in solidarity, not just to work to remove monuments that had no place in our town and that we citizenry did not want in our town. That was an important step and an aesthetic step, an aesthetic change, but not the only one. Really, planting of community gardens or promoting the use of e-bikes so that we can have cleaner air in the city so that we can all experience it. These being acts of solidarity in themselves, but ones oriented on the pursuit of justice, oriented towards cultivating flourishing for all members of our city and our society. And that's the distinction in my mind, that acts of solidarity that might be aesthetic, like the image of those marching with the tiki torches. Again, that's an image that for many of us provokes profound emotions, but that is oriented towards hatred and inequality, whereas a, an aesthetic solidarity say, of a community garden being built on the land that once had a statue of a Confederate hero, that is a different kind of image. It's oriented towards building a more just society. So taking what you're saying earlier about aesthetics, that we're not just talking about the appreciation of beauty, but we're talking about paying attention to our embodied experiences and how those embodied experiences draw us towards certain types of solidarity. Now you've laid out that there's negative solidarity, the Unite the Right rally that is premised in exclusion and violence. And there's a kind of positive solidarity that we might call mutuality or mutual aid, the community gardens and other sorts of examples. Now I'd like to tie all that together and bring it back to the Virgin of Guadalupe. How does Our Lady of Guadalupe help to function as a symbol for us that really can inspire the kind of positive solidarity that you're talking about through aesthetic experience? This is a great question, in part because even since I've published the book, I've been thinking more deeply about this in terms of how I might continue to explore the symbol, because I don't think as much as I love Our Lady of Guadalupe and I'm a Guadalupana, I don't think her image is always leveraged with that positive solidarity in mind. Some of my current thinking coalesces around the way that her image has been used to falsely elevate a white racial identity over against that of the indigenous person. That, you know, this position is that Our Lady of Guadalupe is a virgin of conquest and that she 
played a pivotal role, not in lifting Juan Diego up, but in subduing the indigenous pagans so that Catholicism could flourish in the land. And that is one narrative. But I think that part of that narrative is really interested in maintaining racial inequality and using the Catholic faith as a way to justify elevating whiteness above indigeneity or above blackness. So I don't think Guadalupe is always leveraged, her symbols always leveraged in political ways that do promote equality, but her symbol is also often leveraged in ways that are in pursuit of that. I think historically, it's important to point out that some of the figures of the United Farm Workers Movement, such as Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, that they turned to this image of Our Lady of Guadalupe, mostly by happenstance. Someone who was marching with Cesar Chavez brought an image of Guadalupe with her to the rally and asked if she could use this image in their march. And he said, yeah, sure, bring her. And so not every aesthetic innovation is one of uh, deep, intense and thoughtful reflection. Sometimes it's happenstance, but that her symbol comes to show the way that those who are in conflict with one another can come to inhabit a space and to pursue a new way of being in this world. Now, it's important to say here that this is why we should not neglect thinking about Juan Diego in relation to Our Lady of Guadalupe, because her symbol by itself, I think, can easily be leveraged towards saying that conquest is God's will. But if we read her interaction and interpret her relationship with Juan Diego, we see that her mission was really to lift him up, to lift up the lowly. So her mission is deeply biblical. It's at the center of Christian faith. So we see then this image guiding those in pursuit of justice to lift up the lowly, to form relationships of solidarity with those who are on the margins of society, with those who have experienced violence, marginalization, conquest, and to seek to build a community that is predicated not on that inequality and difference, but on justice, participation, and mutuality. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nicole M. Flores. She is Associate Professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia. She's the author of several scholarly articles and is a contributing writer for America Magazine. She was the recipient of the 2015 Catherine Mowry Lacuna Award for the Best Academic Essay in Catholic Theology from the Catholic Theological Society of America. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity, Our Lady of Guadalupe and American Democracy. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, 
thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Nicole M. Flores. She is an associate professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia. She's the author of several scholarly articles and is a contributing writer for America Magazine. Today we're talking about her recent book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity, Our Lady of Guadalupe and American Democracy. Well, prior to our taking that break just now, you were discussing how images can be leveraged, and you were talking specifically about the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe and how sometimes it has been used in the interests of privilege, white power, those sorts of things, and that it can also be utilized as a reverse of that, an image for mutuality and solidarity. And this really gets us into a portion of your book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity, that I found especially fruitful. And that was where you began to give us an exploded view of what aesthetics is, this idea that we are having these embodied experiences. But you say there's not just one style of aesthetics. There is aesthetics that that feeds into our intellect. There's aesthetics that feeds into our practical engagement with the world. There's aesthetics that feeds into the way that we participate in a marketplace. And all of that is sort of overlapping with similar kinds of analyses of solidarity. And towards the end of the book, these are all coming together. And so maybe let's talk about that in in turns. Let's start with commercialization, because I think that's maybe where a lot of my listeners are most familiar. Let's talk both about commercial aesthetics, but also commercial solidarity. What does it mean when we're kind of looking at solidarity from a lens of the marketplace? Yes. Well, I think many of us, especially in the age of social media, will be familiar with this mode of solidarity where we are called upon by a commercial or a social media campaign to buy something in order to show our commitment or loyalty to some entity. And that's or if it's not buying something, it might be posting something. So again, without being too critical of those who engage in these forms of solidarity, because I am one of those people, I am a millennial, albeit a geriatric millennial, as we are called culturally now. So I I do participate in these movements myself. But A recent example that I think is instructive is the response that many of us in the United States have to the war in Ukraine, that many of us feeling deeply moved and deeply disturbed by the dynamics of this conflict wanted to show whose side we're on. So Twitter and Facebook and Yards There are apartment buildings near my my own home where American flags were replaced with Ukrainian flags. And I think that is not a terrible thing. People were trying to say something very serious. So if, if you, listener, are one who did that, this is not me saying, oh, and then you don't know anything about solidarity. But I think it's important as an ethicist to examine the limitations of that kind of solidarity. And I'm sure any of us who've done that and had serious reflection on what we did or did not accomplish can certainly affirm this point that not much is accomplished through that kind of solidarity that 
not nothing, <laughs> but it, there are significant limits. There's a way of generating political support for that movement, and that's important. But it does not stop the slaughter. It does not stop the suffering. And I think that many of us in that example experience that intense disgust as we watch and we've watched and continue to watch the attack on innocence in Ukraine and feeling, we watch feeling powerless to do anything about it. And so I think that is perhaps an example of the way that we might participate in an act of consumption or an act of virtual solidarity, as Vincent Miller called it in his book, Consuming Religion. So that way of pursuing solidarity is aesthetic. So we are being moved by these images and we, it is practical. We are partaking in a specific action, but it is very limited in terms of what it's able to do. And it's important that we are aware of that. Now, in your book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity, as you're lining out these different types of solidarity, there was another style of solidarity that was very similar but distinguished from this kind of marketplace solidarity, this kind of cause marketing that you just described, and that's intellectual solidarity. And so I want to better understand the similarities and the differences because on one hand, as an academic, feeling like I have solidarity with others and someone putting the Ukrainian flag. In both of these cases, me in the ivory tower and them on the street corner, it doesn't actually change the facts on the ground of the people who are suffering. So I'm hearing that that's the similarity. What are some of the differences between and why should we distinguish commercial marketplace solidarity from intellectual solidarity? Well, the idea of intellectual solidarity, as I draw upon it in the text, was developed by my teacher and now friend and colleague, Father David Hollenbach at Georgetown University. And his writing on this is from the early aughts or the early 2000s. And what he is seeking to emphasize with his work is the way that our acts of discourse can form community in really crucial ways, and maybe even would go so far as political friendships that help society to hold together. So those acts of discourse do have a solidaristic function. They can bring us together either in a conversational mode where you know, we're having a conversational community right now or an argumentative mode. So say this podcast and this radio show was about debating, that could still potentially be the kind of interaction that would help build a community that is more just, that is more participatory, but would do so by trying to refine our thinking and find points where we could agree that could become the basis for action. But I think you're right to point out that these kinds of debates are happening every day on radio shows, podcasts, and classrooms, and they don't necessarily spill out onto the streets. And I 
think that disconnect is one area where I've wanted the book to make a bit of a bridge to show that there is already a kind of solidarity being enacted by social movements, by people working for economic justice and workers' rights, by those working for immigrant justice that can, again, not displace the kinds of conversations that we have, but is necessary to augment them and to give them power to to catalyze and to make the most difference for our society. Let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Nicole M. Flores. She's an associate professor at the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia. We're speaking today about her recent book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity, Our Lady of Guadalupe and American Democracy. Well, continuing to sort of peel out the pieces of the orange here of this analysis of solidarity... You then also talk about a different type of solidarity from the marketplace and the intellectual. You talk about practical solidarity, and that begins to point us towards where we're eventually going, which is aesthetic solidarity. We'll get there, but on the way, let's talk for a few moments about practical solidarity. What is it that is distinct from these other types of solidarity we've talked about so far, and how does this practical solidarity take us further towards a kind of actual feet-on-the-ground change in the world? Yes, I think practical solidarity, again, is where the rubber meets the road already. We're already getting boots on the ground. We're already seeing people putting their values and principles into action at this stage. We're seeing that rather than mere debates or mere conversation about issues that we face, or rather than addressing them through a consumptive action, that practical solidarity calls upon a change or transformation, maybe even a conversion in the kinds of acts that we take in our society in order to pursue more profound solidarity with one another and the kind of solidarity that cultivates justice. So, for example, maybe one that many of us will identify with as people who need to eat in order to survive. It's not news to many of us that our food systems are deeply corrupt in so many different ways, whether this is the way that workers are treated within these systems, whether it's the way the planet is treated within these systems or non-human animals. And I think that we are often tempted to pursue justice in these structures by trying to buy better things. That if I just buy the cheese that's labeled organic rather than the not organic cheese, somehow something will change. Or if I buy this more expensive product, perhaps it means that a worker will see some of that additional profit and will be paid a more just way. And of course, it doesn't always work like that. So an act of practical solidarity might be starting a food co-op where farmers and 
community members are working together in order to create these systems on a local level. So it takes, again, the active consumption, which is necessary, which is even good. It helps us to survive, but it takes it to that deeper level and requires us to fundamentally reevaluate how we're acting in the world and to act differently. Now, and here's the move that you made in your book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity, that really just took the lid off for me in terms of having everything click together and the light bulbs go off because you then move from practical solidarity to aesthetic solidarity. And when I first opened the book, I would have thought that you were moving away from these kind of boots on the ground, change the world moments. But because of what we've said so far about how you're thinking about aesthetics, it really makes sense that we're talking about a kind of embodied solidarity. And that's a term that you borrow from Larisha Hawkins. And I wonder if you can talk to us about how aesthetic solidarity, embodied solidarity, really is the capstone for you of the ways in which we could think about this kind of mutuality in the world that is ordered towards the good and the kind of reversals that are Lady of Guadalupe is calling us to. Mm -hmm. Well, it brings us back to the beginning of this conversation where we were discussing what it means to behold something that's beautiful or to have an aesthetic experience of our lives. And uh, the worldview of pragmatist philosophers, every experience is an aesthetic experience. You can't have an experience that is independent somehow of some sensory dimension, right? Even those of us who are differently abled are still going to experience our reality through some configuration of our senses. And this awareness draws our attention to the way that the aesthetic forms us in ways that enable us to do this more roots down, grassroots kind of work that's required for reorienting our lives to live in solidarity with those who are suffering. And this is probably right beneath the surface of everything I say on any given day. But a lot of my thinking about this work was influenced by time that I spent in Immokalee, Florida. Listeners might be familiar with the coalition of Immokalee workers who are farm workers who organize for economic justice and human rights in the fields of Southwest Florida. The work began among workers in tomato fields who are primarily from Mexico, Guatemala, Haiti, but has continued to expand to workers in other kinds of fields and even in other regions of the United States and the world. And as I participated in this very practical work of alphabetizing mailing cards that came in <laughs> where people were voicing their commitment to this cause or making sure that enough people were in one van that was going to the protests rather than the other, I realized that a part of what was happening was an aesthetic change. There was an experience of that place that was not just shaping me, but perhaps reshaping me. At the time, I was a student at Yale Divinity School, which if you've never been there, it's a beautiful 
campus on a hill above New Haven, even sometimes above and apart from the challenges, the social challenges that New Haven faces. And so I'd spent my time in my first year there reading books and enjoying theological conversation. So in this discursive mode of pursuing solidarity, but being there on the ground, not with the Immokalee workers, not only was this this enactment of the practical form of solidarity, but the ways that I was shaped by the experience of that work and of that community was profoundly formative for me as a Catholic and as a citizen in a democracy. So this aesthetic solidarity is trying to draw our attention to the way that these sensory experiences both attract us to the work of justice, but also shape us as we're doing that work. As you have now had the book out in the world, what has been your experience in your own body of this book now being received by other people? And what are you learning from the data that your body is giving you about your interactions with others as they read this book? Well, it's profoundly humbling to have anything written (laughs) by myself out in the world, but certainly writing a book is (laughs) one of the harder things that I've ever done. And I've given birth to two children. So I think that's, (laughs) that it's only outdone by, by that. But I've been really touched by how open readers have been to these ideas that I present and not without criticism, not without, well, what about this? And that's how the next book will be written is through my encounter with with these wonderful ideas and suggestions and cr- even critiques that have emerged of the book. But really hearing how some of what I have constructed in the ethical and theological analysis resonates with some of the more profound experiences of solidarity and communities committed to justice that readers have experienced. And I found that really gratifying to see that it makes sense to people on a certain level, that that those of us who have had these experiences recognize that each comes with multiple dimensions as a part of that belonging. As a matter of fact, my own experience organizing with the Immokalee workers directed me towards my vocation in the academy. You wouldn't expect that (laughs) from being on the ground and being a part of this really energizing work for justice in a really direct way. But I found at the end of every evening of protests when I was out on one of the campaigns with the group, I would go back to whichever church basement where we were sleeping on the floor that night and I would journal and I would find myself trying to write theologically about what I had experienced. And so it's not to say that theology is the higher experience, uh, but it was one dimension of this experience that I had and my hope and what I, I have seen from those I've had the pleasure of speaking with is that people can identify and continue to fill out that description of what these experiences do for us morally, spiritually, theologically, et cetera. 
Well, Nicole Flores, I learned so much from your book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity. I now have a different way of thinking about my own way of approaching my work as a theologian, but also my work in the world. And I really am grateful to you for taking the time to draw on your experiences, both as a protester and as an ethicist and theologian, and to write this book. But also thank you especially for taking the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking today with Nicole M. Flores. She is Associate Professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia. She's the author of several scholarly articles and is a contributing writer for America Magazine. Today we've been talking about her recent book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity, Our Lady of Guadalupe and American Democracy. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.